All right. As you're getting your way back to your seats, man, I really do love how the spirit of hospitality just flows through this church. So I think you, do, you guys do that better than most churches. All right. Let me pray for us. And like I said, we've got a busy day ahead of us, okay? Uh, I want to make sure that we, we give enough time to hit everything we need to. So I just I want to pray for us, and, and then I want us to jump right into this sermon, okay? But I, I, I think sometimes it's so easy to get, ru- get caught up in the rush and, 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 and flow of a Sunday that, that you're so focused. Maybe, as, maybe you don't know this, but as a pastor, sometimes you get so focused on just every single element being covered and hitting every single note in your sermon and hitting, making sure all our songs are displayed and the lyrics are right most of the time and, 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 and everything works the way you've programmed it to. Sometimes you can get so focused on that, on the busyness of that, that you miss out on God himself. And I just I don't want to miss what God has to do. So would it be okay if I pray and, and ask God to... to focus us in on what he wants us to do. We talked about how to deal with busyness last week, right? And how um, a lot of times the, the sole purpose of busyness is distraction. And I just don't want us to be distracted from what God has to say. So let me pray for us, okay? Oh God, we thank you for, we thank you for, for giving us this time that we can check, that we can, we can not have to think about our growing to-do list for the coming week. We don't have to think about all the projects we have when we get home. We don't have to think about uh, the laundry list, the, the, the grocery list. We don't have to think about what bills we have to pay. We, we, you've given us this specific moment so that just as your word says, we can be still and just know that you are the God that is in this place right now that you're the God that's being worshipped literally around the world as we speak. Thank you. It is a gift. It is a gift that you've given that to us. And so we acknowledge that. We say thank you for that. And we pray that you would uh, let us hear the truth that you want to speak into our spirits and into our lives today. So we give this time to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Again, glad you're with us. Like I said, we've, we've got a lot going on today. We've had a child dedication. Uh, later on today is the first Sunday of the month, so therefore we're having our communion service. And then we're also having a baptism today. So if anybody would like to get married, we can complete the entire circle of church influence today. Okay, anybody? Any takers? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That would be the worst singles ministry of all time, wouldn't it? All right. Okay, so we're in a series called How to Deal, talking about how we navigate through these difficult, hard things in life. And we've talked last week about busyness. And we looked at the example of of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. Today we're talking about a a thing that, that really, if you're not careful, will literally consume you and cripple you and crumble your life. And it's the subject of doubt. And it's the subject of doubt. And, and we live in a world where doubt is growing in an increasing influence. We're going in a, in a world where doubt and the subject of, 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 of doubt itself is kind of spreading in its influence across the world. We live in a, a, a more and more and more secular world, meaning that... Um, Back in the 13 to 1400s, it was a natural thing. It was a normal thing for people to believe, and it was an easier thing for people to believe there is a God, 
and I, I have been made so that I can understand and commune with this God and that he wants to know me intimately. And we move more and more towards today where it seems as if the only thing we really want to say we can know and understand is what can be proven and can be tangibly touched and held in our hands. And that's not to say that it's harder for us to have faith today. It seems as almost as if faith is the leap today, isn't it? Whereas for centuries, humanity, the the easier thing to believe was that subject of faith. But now it's almost as if the the subject has flip-flopped and and as if faith is the thing that's difficult. And doubt is what comes naturally, right? And it's not that it's harder to have faith. It's just that there's less of it in the world today, right? Right? And it's because we live in a more and more increasingly secular world. And so, therefore, if we live in more of a secular world, we're going to have to fight harder as faith-filled people against this subject of doubt. And so in preparing for this sermon today, you know, when you, when you, if you grew up in church, if you went to vacation Bible school, or if you just have any kind of knowledge of Scripture, I have to think most of you are immediately thought, well, this is where he comes into his Doubting Thomas sermon, right? Well, I've got news for you. No. Okay, I, I decided, I, I kept praying, like, God, this just seems too easy. You know, the, the sermon about Doubting Thomas is dot. Da- Thomas was a guy who walked with Jesus for three years, and then when Jesus was crucified, put in the grave, Thomas watched him be put in the grave, and then Jesus was resurrected, word starts to spread, there's rumors that Jesus isn't there anymore, and Thomas says, you know what, I'm not going to believe it till I see it, right? And, and I just thought, and I just kept praying, like, God, this is too simple of a sermon for something that is growing more and more complex in our world. Now, it gets us to the same destination, but the, 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 the approach I want us to take today is maybe a little bit different than just saying, well, you know what, if you doubt Jesus, just go touch his hands, right? But ultimately, that's where we end up, because that's what Thomas did. But if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can open it up to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at the subject of doubt through the book of Psalms. We're going to be specifically today, exclusively today, in, in Psalm chapter 73. And you know, the Psalms are unique to Scripture. They're kind of this unique genre within all of the Bible that they showcase how we are to be, like we talked about a few weeks ago, how we are to be holistic people. They teach us how to pray, but what they do is they show us, I think, sometimes even, like in today's case, within the same chapter of Psalms, how to be raw and authentic and honest with God but at the same time still aim yourself towards God, towards being hopeful in God. And I think if we were honest, the majority of us in this place are really good at one of those two. Sometimes you're really good at being authentic and truthful and honest and raw and how you feel and, and, and how you're struggling with things. And, and, and then some of you are very, very good about putting your hope in God and being, being continually hopeful, right? You, you, you have a Bible passage on every single one of your, your clothes at home, right? You have scripture on every single wall. And some of you are really good at just, at just being vulnerable, 
But what the Psalms does is it shows us that although those are both important, we can't exclude one for the other. If we're very, very good at being raw and authentic and genuine and, and just vulnerable in our, in our hurts and feelings and, and triumphs and, and, and defeats, but yet never turn our hope towards asking God to change us, you run the risk of being, becoming a very cynical and, and disenchanted and angry person. But if, if you rely exclusively on saying uh, your hope is in God and this and that and that, but never acknowledge that sometimes things just don't work out the way you want them to and you get hurt and wounded, then you'll never allow God to, to penetrate you and, and heal those wounds. And so... What the Psalms do is that they show us how to pray in raw, honest ways about who we are and who God is. But they also show us how to, pr- how to pray with these raw and authentic hearts and plead with God to reconcile us back to God and to find that hope in God. And so that's why, it, with, when it comes to the subject of doubt, I thought Psalms chapter 73 is one of the best examples of, of how I believe God wants us to deal with doubt. Because I think it's important for us to deal with doubt. It's not for, God is, I don't think God wants us to just like, forget that doubt is there or not acknowledge that we doubt things. Okay? But God wants us to, God doesn't want us to avoid that, nor does He want us to be content with doubts either. Right? What I'm saying is it's okay for you to go through a season of doubting, but you can't stay there. Right? God doesn't want you to stay there. He wants you to acknowledge that I'm struggling with this doubt right now, but He loves you too much to let you just sit in that season. Because that's a very troubling place to be. That's a very potentially dangerous place for you. And we see in Psalm chapter 73, the author, Asaph, a priest. By the way, a little piece of trivia. David was not the only, David didn't write every single psalm. Okay? We see this, one of, this is one of Asaph's 12 psalms that are made into the canon of Scripture. Um, and so what we see is that Asaph tells his story just through Psalm chapter 73 of a story that says, I hit rock bottom. And I was this close to walking away from God, walking away from everything. Yet God took that season and made me better. And he made me stronger and it increased my faith. And so if you don't get anything else out of today, before you fall asleep in your chair, know this. The way out of doubt is worship. The way we get out of doubt is through worship. And we're going to see that expressed um, through Asaph's, Asaph's psalm here in Psalm chapter 73. And, you know, sometimes it's very easy for us to maybe not see this amount of hurt and pain and... Um, rawness in, in that sometimes there's so much 
Like, like what's, what? The, sometimes the, there's the conclusion comes so quickly in this psalm, we don't realize that the depth of hurt that, um, that went into it. Sometimes we, do, we tend to think that, well, for, in this instance, Asaph's doubt or his hurt or his, his season of being at rock bottom must have not lasted very long because he only talks about it for like seven verses. When we tend to forget that perhaps those seven verses were six months, a year of the man's life. And so when you don't feel like you've recovered from that season of doubt as quickly as you should, don't let the enemy try to condemn you for that, right? But let's, let's really try to lean in here and maybe try to expose a little bit more of, of what Asaph was going through. Asaph writes this psalm in Psalm chapter 73. Okay, and we'll just break it down. Let's look at the first. Uh, let's look at the first three verses. This is kind of the nature of doubting God. Psalm chapter three, verse one, seventy-three, verse one it says, "Truly, God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure." But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. Why? Why? What? What? What caused him to to go to that? Verse three. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. You see, what, what we see in these first two verses is Asaph says, look, I know in my mind this. And so when we see Verse 1 in, in Psalm chapter 73, this is his theological statement. This is him saying, I know this in my mind about God. I know the, that God is good. My training, my education, my culture, my heritage says this. He says, I know, this is what I should know, that truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But his heart says... What verse 2, what we see in verse 2. His heart says this. But for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. How many of you have ever gone through a season in your faith where you just said, I'm almost, I was almost gone or I'm almost gone. You're just ready to walk away from it all. You see, where doubt comes, in this instance, is in verse 3. Where this, what, what caused this season of doubt in Asaph's life is expressed in verse 3. He says, For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. See, so what happens is that Asaph sees what is contradictory to God's plan and God's nature, to what he knows about God, but yet he sees people who are utterly what he calls wicked flourishing in this life. So his head says, I know that God is good and God takes care of his children. He knows all these foundational truths that he learned in Scripture. But when he looks out into the world around him, he doesn't see those things being in alignment with what his head sees. 
And how many of you can, can say the same thing? You say, you know, I know what it says in Scripture. I know what the Bible says, that, that God is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? But, but then I go to work, and that guy throws me under the, under the bus as often as he can just to get ahead of me. He's against me. How many of you see the injustice in this world? You know that God is a loving God. You know this because the Bible says it and you've been taught it, but yet you look around and you see so much hurt and suffering and pain and woundedness and brokenness and injustice in this world. See, what happens is that doubt starts to bloom when you experience things which contradict what Scripture says about God. Doubt happens when you see clearly God says this, but my life sees this. And what, what Asaph is drawing out of this, maybe what a lot of us draw out of this, is, is we see so much of this expressed in times in the lives of people who don't believe in Jesus, right? And we just see like, we see them succeeding in life. We see them flourishing. And yet, here we are doing everything we think of been, or have been told or been taught is the right thing to do. And finally, one day, we just throw our hands up in the air and we say, God, I've given my entire life to this. And here I sit with an empty bank account, with a dead-end job, with no hope. And look at these people. They're living... And they don't even care what you say about things. And you are, they are flourishing. And you see the, the, the blessings that people are receiving in life that should be going to the, you think, the blessings of God are being redirected from God's people to the wicked. And it's right there in that moment that doubt starts to bloom. That's, that's the ground that, that is fertile to doubt. Now, I'm not telling you to avoid those thoughts, okay? Like, uh, Christians are not repressed people, okay? And what I hope you can see as we move on is that it's okay. Again, it's okay to have that doubt. It's okay to acknowledge doubt, but it's not okay to live and be in contentment with that doubt. And as you'll begin to see, as we continue to move on and break down more of this, 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 this chapter of Psalms, you'll see some ways that God wants us to get out of doubt, okay? So when you see these things happen, though, in the moment, when you feel, God, I've been faithful to you as much as I can be, and these faithless people are being blessed way more than me, that seed that gets planted in your life is the seed of belief that says God is, not very good. God is not really good. If God can allow this to happen, how can God be good? Like That's where that, that starts to come. And you see that continuing on. Look down in just verses 12 and 13. Psalm chapter 73, verses 12 and 13. Asa says, Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease with their riches. 
enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? How many of you have ever prayed something along those lines? Maybe you've thought something like that before. You look around, and you, you may, it may even be family members, it may be friends, it may be co-workers, it may be people that you just know from afar, and you see them living what you consider to be a hyper-successful life, but you know they are as morally bankrupt as there ever was a person. And I will say this for you. For those of you who have the spiritual gift of discernment, you've got to be careful in that moment. Okay? I don't know how many of you have the gift of discernment. I just want to touch on this. This is not in my notes, but I just feel like I need to say it. If you're not careful and you have the spiritual gift of discernment and you don't mature that gift, it is very, very, very easy. And it's a slippery slope for you to live a life of judgment and disenfranchisement. Because the spiritual gift of discernment gives you insight into what's happening in someone's life before anybody else really knows about it. And you've got to find some wisdom in there. You've got to find some maturity in that and how you use that gift. Otherwise, you're getting access to, to, to be a judgmental person. And so if you need to know how do I train myself, how do I... How do I because as we'll learn and we'll call, by the way, um, all of us have a gift from God that we've been given. And it's not just one thing to, to be given the gift. You've got to learn how to use the gift. My, my oldest son, who just turned eight this summer, asked me for a drone for his birthday. Okay? He did not get a drone for his birthday. Okay? Because I knew that if I gave him the gift... His lack of training with the gift and how to maneuver that gift would ultimately lead to a crash, right? So maybe what you need to begin to go through in your life is a season of training from God and how to use your spiritual gift more effectively. It's one thing to have the gift. It's another thing to know how to use the gift, right? Okay. So what, what happened was, back here in verses 16 and 17, is that he begins to see, he begins to express really the depth of envy for the wicked that he had in his heart. Remember, that's how he described it, right? That's how he describes what brought him almost to a wrecking point in his spiritual life. Like what brought him to rock bottom was that he envied the proud. And he saw them prosper despite their wickedness. And he begins to just kind of explain a few more things. But then you keep reading and you see something happen. There's a turn. There's a shift in his life. And it begins in verses 16 and 17. He says, so I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task it is. Amen. Thank you for putting that in there, Asa. Verse 17. But then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. So you see what happens is, and then he, he goes through 17 through 22, but what happens is that what turned 
his life around, what turned Asaph's doubt around, what, what literally shifted him and pivoted him, was that he got in the presence of God. Whenever you are in your season of doubt and whenever you think you are despairing because you look around and you see the amount of injustice around you and you, you don't understand why people who can be so mean and hateful to God's people or just people in general could be such an elevated people in today's society. What you can't do is just sit in that mess and let that churn. What God is telling you through this man's experience is that is when you need to worship God the most. That is when you need God the most. Because what happens is, and what we see is, there's three things that happen whenever we worship God. And it's these things that remind us. And what we see is this. Number one, God punishes sin. Just read through verses 17 through 22. Right? It says, Then I went into your sanctuary, God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Verse 18, Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Verse 21, Then I realized that my heart was bitter. And I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. You see, what happens, number one, worship changes your perspective. Worship gives you a different set of prescription lenses to view the world. You see, what, what a happened in Asaph's life was that when he got into the sanctuary, and you have to remember this, the sanctuary was a physical place for the priests and the people of God at this point, right? Not every, number one, not everyone had a scripture. There was no such thing as the version app on their tablet at the time, right? There was literally a tablet, okay? So in order for people to hear the word of God spoken and read, in order for the common people of, of that, that culture to, to experience and sing songs and worship God, and then at the time also see the consequences of sin, where they had to sacrifice animals and, and in order to receive the forgiveness of their sin, they had to go to a physical place, the sanctuary. And we know today that Christ has changed that entire paradigm and that we are the sanctuary. We are where God resides. But for him, he had to physically go to an address. And he had to go through this experience. But what happens was when he got in God's presence, when he worshiped God, when he heard the scriptures, it immediately, what it does is it zooms your perspective out. Maybe a better way to say it is this. Whenever we are in the middle of our doubt, whenever we're in the middle of our pain and our frustration, and when we're at rock bottom and ready to walk away from it all, 
the only perspective you have on your life is as if you're looking at your life through a peephole in a door, right? You only can see, like, what's right in front of you. Here's what I like you to do. Everybody, squint your eye, like, wink. Everybody wink and hold the wink, all right, like this. And then put, it, put, your, put your fist like this, okay? And then just look right through there. And all you can see is what's in front of you. And this is what your world looks like whenever you're living in a season of doubt. But whenever we can come into God's sanctuary, when we come into God's presence, and for those of you who are continuing to do this, thank you, by the way, all right? But whenever we come into God's presence, the door opens. And your field of vision increases. And you realize that not one, and then you see that not one sin in this world goes unnoticed by God himself. And that ultimately, everybody who walks this earth will one day stand before God himself and give an account for every wrong thing they've ever done. And Scripture says, all of us are subject to that. Subject to that judgment and either subject to grace or subject to wrath. And even though we may not see it in this lifetime, that will happen. Because God says He's a just God. But whenever we're so focused... And looking through our life like this, we don't see what happens. I don't see my hand waving over here. I don't see my hand waving over here because I'm so close. And my doubt has given me this tunnel vision. But when I can step into God's sanctuary, when I can worship God, the peephole is gone and I can see the entire field of vision. So that's what it does. It, it gives him a bigger picture of what God does. And when you get around God, you can't help but notice the distance that sin puts between us. And ultimately, he discovered that the root of all of this, hope, this despair and this doubt was his envy. Was his envy. Worshiping God oftentimes makes us stop pointing the finger at other people, saying that's what's wrong. But it, points, it makes us point the finger at ourselves and saying, here's what's wrong in me. Because it exposes things in our life that we've placed between us and God. So that's the first thing that worship reminds us. Second thing is that God's love is unbreakable. God's love is unbreakable. Look at verse 22. I was so foolish and arrogant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Verse 23. Yet I still belong to you. You hold me. You hold my right hand. You notice who's doing all the work in that relationship? You notice who's doing all the work in this? It doesn't say, I'm holding on to you, God. 
It doesn't say, I'm grasping and holding onto you as tight as I can. It's almost as if the image is, God, we were good and we were holding hands. But in my doubt, in my fear, in my envy, in this case, I let go. But you didn't let go of me. You hold my right hand. See, God's love for you is stronger than your doubt. God's love for you is stronger than your doubt. God does not lose one of his people. God does not lose one of his people. There is not one person that has been God's person that could not claim this verse. There's not one Christian's Bible that says, I held on to you and then my arm got tired and I let go and I fell down. All of our Bible in Psalm chapter 73 says, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. God's love for you is unbreakable. And even when you're ready to walk away, even when you've had those seasons where you say, I don't get it, this doesn't work out the way I want it to, I'm frustrated, why don't you care, God? God doesn't let go of your hand. I've told you the story before. When I was, there was a... there was one particular summer a few years ago. Um, I was invited locally. I, I, spoke, I got to speak quite, at quite a few camps before, but there was one camp that was in a close proximity to my hometown, about a 30-minute drive. And I had uh, I'd been talking with my dad about spiritual things at the time. My dad's not a believer today. Uh, please continue to pray for my father, by the way. But he's getting close. But um, I, was, I was preaching at a, at a youth camp. And through much pleading and gnashing of teeth and, and, and begging, my dad finally agreed, I'll come to camp the last night of camp so I can hear you preach. It would be the first time he ever heard me preach, right? And I, I know I've told this story to you before, but just bear with me. And when you get old, you tell the same stories over and over and over, okay? But driving to that camp that last night, I was getting there early, and I was just in my 30, 40-minute drive there, through the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas. Um, I said, God, this is it. I've been praying for my dad. At that point, it had been for eight years. I became a Christian when I was 16. I've been praying for him daily since then. I said, this is it. He's going to come. He's going to hear me preach. And, you know, the last night of any youth camp, it's always the big, amazing, like, kumbaya, everybody hugs, everybody gets saved kind of night, right? Maybe you don't. That's okay. But anyways, um, It was going to be a great, amazing night. I was going to just preach the gospel. I was just going to present the way that you can receive grace in your life is by asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins and experience new life with him. And I I said, God, this is it. I can see the plan working. He said, yes, he's coming on his way. He's coming after work. So dad comes, I give him a hug, like I'm saying, I'm so glad to see you, I have a seat, have a seat right here in the middle so I can watch you the whole time, and, and so he sits down, and, and we do the worship service, and my, watching my dad, surrounded by about 100 to 200 middle schoolers, 
who were just awkward in no matter what environment, but especially in camp, was hilarious, right? But anyways, I get up and I'm preaching the sermon. I don't think I looked at anybody else that entire night. I was just preaching to my dad because I knew that's how it's going to work out. So I got to the point where I said, I'd like everybody to bow your head and close your eyes. And if you are in a place that you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, if you want to accept the free gift of grace, just raise your hand and put it down. And we've had hands go up all over. But there was one seat where a hand never went up. It was right there in the middle. And it was as if every ounce of wind just went out of my sails at that moment. And after it was over, he said, hey, that was really good. I didn't think you could do that, blah, 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 right? I said, well, thank you very much. And so he left. And so I hung around and made fun of middle schoolers because that's what I'm good at and that's what they love. And so then after it was, after it was over, I got in my car and I was just, I, I felt like a deflated balloon. And I just remember that was the longest 30-minute drive of my entire life. And I just let God have it. I did. I just, I, I thought that this was the plan. Like, Where were you? Again, my doubt had allowed me to focus on only that one chair. I didn't see the other kids in the rooms whose eternities were changed. But I've told you the end of this story before, right? God let me get it out of my system. He let me vent. He let me say, God, I don't even know why I'm doing this. How can you call me into ministry whenever I can't even lead my own dad to Jesus? And it was in that moment, he reminded me that he never let go of my hand. And he said, son, I never, ever called you to convince your dad to follow me. All I asked you to do was to tell him about me. And you did it. And I'm so proud of you. And I worshiped God like I'd never worshiped him before. And I didn't have a like I didn't have a guitar. Like that would be dangerous. Please don't play guitar and drive, okay? I didn't have any CDs on. It was just silence in my car, but I had worshipped God like I'd never worshipped Him before. And it was in that moment that literally it just felt like a sack of boulders had been peeled off of my shoulders. But I had to go through that moment of doubt. I had to go through that, that, that anguish, that 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 pain and just being able to acknowledge that doubt in front of him, but he wasn't going to let me be content with doubting that. And he reminded me that his love for me is unbreakable and it's stronger than my doubt. When I was ready to let go of God's hand, he wouldn't let go of me. And he has not let go of you, child. And the third thing that that worship reminds you of is that God himself is the superior portion 
God himself is the superior, the greater portion. Look at verses 25 and 26. Look at in Asaph's story how he describes it. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Look at verse 25 again. Whom am I in heaven for the you? But then look at the second half of this. I desire you more than anything on earth. And isn't that a direct contradiction from what he just started this entire journey with when he said he envied people who received the blessings of God and did not have the right spirit of God within them. When the very thing that made him almost want to walk away from it all, a priest, someone whose entire life was dedicated to the service of the Lord, he was that close to walking away. But when he experiences God's superior portion for him, it gives him that perspective and makes him remember his first love. That he desires God because of what God has shown him more than anything on earth. God's relationship, your relationship with God is the only relationship you'll have in this life which needs nothing from you in order to give you joy. Let me say that again. Your relationship with God, God himself, is the only relationship you'll ever have in this world which needs nothing from you in order to give you the fullness of joy. Every other relationship on earth, in order to get to that next level, you both have got to agree, let's do this, right? In order for... My wife, to become my wife, I had to ask her to be my wife, and she said yes. And we were filled with great joy. 14 years of great joy, right? Or there's, We've had a few good months in those 14 years. But um, God himself is the superior portion. He's the only treasure in this world. And you, if you are in Christ, have found that treasure. There's nothing else that compares. And there's nothing else that Asaph desires. So, how do you deal with doubt? You worship. How do you overcome doubt? How do you face doubt? You worship. And what worship does is that it reminds us Number one, God punishes sins. It gives us a bigger picture of what God does. Second thing is that it shows us God's love is unbreakable. And third, it shows us and reminds us that God himself is the superior portion. But the only way you'll go through those seasons of, uh, or th- through that experience of being reminded of that, exposed to that, shown that, 
is by entering into his sanctuary. And that, friend, is the way out of doubt. Let's pray. God, just as just as the only way Thomas's doubt was removed was by being in the presence of Jesus. Asaph's doubt was removed by worshiping and being in the presence of God as well. God, I, I pray that, that you would remind us today that you are the only treasure in this world. That you are the superior portion. That when compared to you, nothing else can stand. Even the great things that the godless have that we envied in the first place. When compared to the fullness of Christ, to the riches of knowing God himself, can't even compare thank you for the Psalms thank you for the saints who've gone before us Who, thank you for Asaph who was vulnerable enough to tell you that he had hit rock bottom but was wise enough to still point his hope towards God May we walk it out the same way that he did as well. Thank you.